You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Come and shake your body, baby, do the conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. Come and shake your body, baby, do the conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. <laughs> Welcome back at 6.33 this morning. Michael Leibowitz joining us this morning. So talking a little bit about the Fed, you know, what, what the Fed does um, in particular is they buy bonds. And when they buy those bonds, then that liquidity finds its way into the financial markets by providing excess liquidity reserves. So interestingly, though, the one thing that they did differently during the economic pandemic shutdown uh, back in March of 2020 was they started buying bond ETFs, right? So to bail out companies that were basically on the verge of bankruptcy, they started buying bond ETFs to make sure that you know bonds didn't default. There was there was support for the bond market, particularly in the junk bond market, where we have a lot of companies kind of on the verge of bankruptcy, and the only way they exist is being able to get loans at very low interest rates. Um, and so we saw the Fed really engage for the first time in buying bond ETFs. And and this is kind of that everybody at that point was saying, well, here's the first step towards Japan to where the Federal Reserve starts buying, you know, stock ETFs, right? They were they're still buying bonds, which are within their charter, but really kind of outside their charter. They're not really authorized to buy ETFs, but they kind of finagle their way around it for emergency purposes. But now in the Wall Street Journal today, they are going to be selling $13.5 billion of ETF bond ETFs by the end of this year. Um, so those are those ETFs that they bought back in March of last year to bail out the, 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 the corporate bond market. Now they're posting up to sell those. Of course, that's supply hitting them. You know, that's going to be, you know, supply hitting the market, potentially um, pushing bond prices down on those ETFs. So what do you think about that? So uh, 13 point, uh, 13 and a half billion or whatever it was yep. is actually a number. So it will have an effect on the markets, but I think more because of what they're doing than what they're the actual size of what they will be selling. Remember, they do 120 billion of QE every month. Right. Month, so 13 billion is only 10 percent. It's not not a huge deal from a you know mathematical point of view and what the market can handle. But what they really did in hindsight, and we had no way of knowing this at the time, was threaten the market. Mm-hmm. Right. That what they were saying is you keep messing around with bond yields, you keep pushing bond yields up for corporate bonds and we're going to buy them all just like we do in treasuries and just like we do in mortgages. Right. We're going to we're going to take another step out of what we're allowed to do and we're going to buy these things now. So don't worry, investors. We got your back. We won't let you lose money. Don't worry, corporations. We'll make sure that you can keep borrowing at very low rates. And so I think this program was both. Unsuccess- you could say unsuccessful. They only bought $13 billion. That's nothing. Right. Yeah. But very successful. I'd say extremely successful because it put a uh, floor on the market, right? The yields couldn't really drop, knowing that the Fed would buy everything, right? right. Now, they didn't buy everything, but that threat was always there. And I think it's going to serve the Fed well going forward because now everyone knows that when the Fed gets active again, not only can they buy treasuries, not only can they buy mortgages, they can buy corporate bonds, they can buy Apple bonds, but they can mm. also buy junk bonds. So if you're an investor, why, why, why even just you know, try to find the highest yielding bonds because the Fed will buy them, right? right. Why, why, why even do any due diligence? Why, <laughs> why try to find the bond that has a good chance of paying off, right? That's not going to go bankrupt. 
Well, so basically you're making the argument it doesn't really matter what you buy. Just buy anything well, and, and you'll be fine, right? Not necessarily, but within reason, right? So, for instance, Ford is junk rated. I, I, you know, if something happens, I have no reason not to suspect the Fed won't buy Ford bonds, right? It's an integral company to the economy. It's a large company. Its bonds are liquid. And I think that's an example of a junk rated bond that's protected by the Fed now. So, you know, that's what the Fed, the Fed does this, right? It's not just their purchases that are important, and they are very important, mm -hmm. but it's the fact that everyone knows the Fed will come to the market and rescue them. And that's how, that's how valuations have stayed at such elevated levels, even pre-pandemic. Valuations were extremely high, and they've been high for a long time, and that's because no one everyone's willing to take additional amounts of risk because they think the fed has their back right and so and, and the argument you're making is that the fed does have their back so there's really no worry about risk so again you can buy junk bonds without any real risk of default i i think that's you know within reason again i think if you're buying small companies the fed doesn't have your back and right now for instance if the economy stays okay, mm -hmm. you know, there's no reason for the Fed to intervene. I think they will let a lot of junk bonds fail if that's what's going to happen. Right. right. But but when things get problematic again and when the Fed feels the need that they have to in interfere, they will. And they will protect. Right. It, you, you know, it's not just protecting the companies who took on all this debt and now have to refund it over and over again. Mm -hmm. They're protecting investors that knowingly took risk. And, I, you know, both sides of that equation are very problematic because it, it basically creates misbehaviors. Companies are borrowing too much money because the rate is so low and investors are not doing their due diligence and considering, you know, they're, they're discounting or haircutting the risk of every investment they buy. And that creates huge distortions in the capital markets, which creates huge distortions in the economy. Right. And that's why economic growth over the next 10 years will be below 2% because of, in part, not, not everything, right? Demographics are an issue. Productivity is an issue. But the Fed is doing nothing to help future growth, and they are actually hurting the future growth rate as well of well, the economy. And, well, right. And we saw this during the, the pandemic shutdown, right, is that companies have spent years, you know, buying back their own stock, misallocating capital, et cetera. And as soon as there's an economic problem where they need cash— they all run to the government saying, hey, we need a bailout, right? Right. Um, you know, and this is, but this is the, you know, the, the effect that the Fed has now had is that it's encouraging companies to misallocate capital. It's, it's encouraging companies to do ineffective share buybacks. And because companies now know, hey, as soon as the economy gets in trouble, I can run and get a bailout from the, from the government. They don't have to worry about paying back. So why not? Um, you know, and this 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 doesn't lead to stronger economic growth over time. It doesn't lead to better economic prosperity, which is why, you know, we have people, you know, running around the streets rioting at this point because of wealth inequality. And, you know, they're they're rightfully angry at corporations. You know, right now we've got a big push. You know, corporations need to pay their fair share. Individuals need to pay their fair share, whatever it is. We've got to raise taxes. Um but this is that belief that, you know, there's, you know, this, this, well, it's not, it's not a belief. It's the reality that there's this massive wealth inequality that's been created. And primarily a lot of that has emerged since the Fed has become so active in supporting asset prices, which benefit the wealthy, but not the bottom 80% of income earners. 
Right. Those closest to the money printing press, those closest to the federal government, receive an an inordinate amount of that money. And that's why you have these Mm -hmm. massive wealth inequality gaps that are on par with the late 1920s. Because those on Wall Street benefit from the Fed. Those large corporations that get bailed out, that, that get the big contracts from the government, are the ones benefiting. They're not passing it on to their employees, right, largely. They, they are buying back shares. They're doing whatever they can to get the price of their shares up because they have options. That's how they get paid. They get paid largely in stock options, and they want nothing more than the stock price to go up, even if it means that the future of the company is worse than it was before they do that. And these are, I mean, these are incredible problems. And this isn't capitalism anymore, right? Well, this, capitalism. This, right. But this is the funny thing about AMC, right? So AMC is, is a great example of this, right? So these small, you know, retail investors, um, you know, that the, the have a few dollars to invest are running in and, and speculating into AMC, hoping that the price has gone up. So, right, the price went up. What are the insiders of the companies doing? The insiders of the companies just sold a big chunk of shares to a hedge fund that turned around and sold them for a profit. They are just announced this morning they're going to sell another 11.5 million shares of stock this morning to capture that price. So it's interesting is that, you know, the individuals are mad at these companies for being so wealthy, but by the individuals driving up the price of the stock, it allows these insiders of these companies to sell shares to generate wealth. It's a very, it, it's, it's, it's a very fascinating feedback loop of investors actually causing the problem that, they, that they're so angry about that they want solved, right? It's a very warped system, right? Yeah. And again, you look at GameStop, you look at AMC, how much money is in those stocks that could be into more productive ventures, infrastructure, could be in trying to find a cure for cancer. But no, how much is in market cap of those two companies, which are, look, they have value. People are still going to the movies, but it's not worth 10 times what it was before the pandemic. Well, you say that. I mean, the, the number of movie traffic goers has not recovered at all. Uh, really, uh, since the, you know, kind of June of last year, I just posted a chart out on our Twitter account this morning. You know, there's been real no uptick in traffic going to movies. Uh, just a good example, they just had the the Quiet Place Two just debuted over the weekend, raised fifty seven million dollars in its first weekend. That's that that's the number one generator of of box office returns this year. And that's just a drop in the bucket of what we used to see where you would see a Marvel movie hit the theaters and generate three or four hundred million in a weekend. Right. I mean, just vast differences. And of course, you know, they've got a lot of inference. And and again, with AMC, you know, that's not an ethereal business. Those they've got rent to pay. They've got, you know, massive. These are big facilities, you know, 20, 24 screen facilities staffed with employees, overhead, labor costs, all that, you know. That's not a real profitable structure for them right now, but yet the stock's trading at all-time highs. Are there even 24 movies out there right now? <laughs> yeah, they're running a lot of, uh, they're, they're rolling back a lot of old movies to, to fill screens. So, all right, all right, quick break. We'll come back. Uh, we're going to wrap up the show with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away.
listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com.